Hi, I'm Fran Whitlock and you're listening to Community, the Ecovillage podcast from Gen Europe. If this show is about the big questions of Ecovillage life, then there's one topic we couldn't go for long without talking about. Whenever you tell people you live in an eco-village, or talk about eco-villages at all, sooner or later the question comes up, but how do you make any money? Many of us might like to think that in an eco-village you can just forget about money altogether, but resilience in all aspects of living is important in the big shift to a regenerative world, and that means economy and finances too. Eco-village economics is a complex issue, and today we're talking to Dick DeFrost, a researcher who's visited communities across Europe to talk about their economies. She talks us through some of the models eco-villages use to deal with their finances, highlights the importance of expanding our notion of economics beyond money and into other kinds of capital where community can play an important role, and explains some of the strategies we can use in our own lives to think more like an eco-villager when it comes to our personal economy and livelihoods. Hi, Dicta. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for letting me. So, Dicta, you've um, been visiting eco-villages and you've done research on the economics of eco-village living. So can you tell us from your research, I mean, I guess one of the big questions is, is living in an eco-village financially viable? I mean, how do people make a living when they're living in community? Yeah, so these are two bigger questions. The first one about whether it's financially viable. Well, it looks like it is because they're still existing and have been for quite some years, some of them now. So that's a good kind of indicator that it is. But I think it's important to remember that when we talk about eco-villages, we often talk about them as experimental spaces where there's a lot of trial error also in the case of economics and, it, and maybe even especially in the case of economics. So yes, generally they seem to be financially viable, but it also tends to, at the point of time we're in now, to depend more on the individual than on the eco-village as a whole. So on the individual eco-village members, except for the eco-villages with a shared or common economy. Here there are some variations to that, but it's very rare. And then you're asking about how do people make a living? And I think to answer that question, I'll just kind of broaden it out a bit because it's important that we're on the same page as to what making a living is or economy even is. So what I would like to do is kind of broaden out the concept so that we understand economics as livelihood, as like all the different elements that come together to meet or serve our needs and desires. So that's kind of how we could start to think about economics um, or what an economy is. In eco-villages, what we see is that there's generally a trend to try to dissipate these kind of different economic elements out uh, and have like different methods to achieve greater resilience. So this also goes for individuals as well as the structures. So we see that eco-villages, they kind of try to achieve as much self-sustainability as possible, self-sufficiency. That's like one methodology of kind of serving the needs. Um, I would also call it like co-sustainability is probably a more proper word than self-sustainability because it's in a community structure. 
So here, some of the elements would be like growing your own food or making kind of the essential products yourself. And in that way, trying to kind of cover as many of the basic needs without money as a middleman, you can kind of say. But it can also be kind of through trading or bartering with producers or even other eco-villages in the local areas. So what I was just doing now is to mention that there are different other ways of kind of making your economy work without going into finances or money as such. But financially speaking, and I'm guessing this is also what the question is kind of lending itself to, is like how do eco-villages or eco-village members especially make money? And I think just before I, I answer that question, I feel like it's a nice context to have that really just the very um, vast majority of the eco-villages that I studied the eco-village members are quite highly educated. So that's kind of like a nice context to have with you. So what they do, and I'll kind of just kind of mention them as a bullet list, I think, is very common to what normal people, I'll say like that, or people not living in eco-villages are making the money from. So working at any kind of job, really, like outside of the community, that is the main thing. So what we, the rest of us do, and this can really be any kind of work. Like I have not been able to find any kind of trend in this. There is a lot of care work. There is a lot of work in the creative sector, but it really can be anything. But that also kind of just shows that the eco-village lifestyle is attractive to a wide range of people. So it's also quite an interesting uh, thing to notice. And then you have different kinds of businesses most often micro businesses you don't really find such big businesses located in eco villages but that's also a way of making a living some of them do have more of like a cooperative structure such as like we have seen a lot of csas in eco villages which is community supported agriculture uh, and other businesses that tend to be structured in a similar way but they're also more like traditional businesses, like one or two or three persons enterprises or people going freelance. Then you see, and that's quite rare, but it's very like a specific characteristics that is quite interesting in eco-villages is to have a common community business. And you see this in some of the shared economy settings that are there, uh, which is very interesting. But what is different, I guess, from when we see how people make a living in eco-villages as compared to people outside of eco-villages is that when they make their own businesses and often the jobs that they take are primarily quite well in touch or resonates quite well with the ethics that are also very present in eco-villages. Uh, so very much about sustainability and different care ethics. And that's really interesting because I think um, some people might be quite surprised to learn what you said before about how quite a lot of people living in, in eco-villages actually just have kind of normal jobs. Because I think often people think, oh, you know, if you live in an eco-village, you disconnect totally from society and you're no longer participating in the regular economy. But uh, what you're saying is that that's not really the case. But some people are trying to find their way through create, even creating jobs that are more in line with their ethics and eco-village ethics. 
definitely, definitely. And I think it's a very present narrative right now that eco-villages are hiding away. They're like small oases that you, you can only go to if you leave the rest of the world behind. And I, I think it has some kind of historical background from the 70s, uh, this kind of narrative, but it's definitely not um, prevalent anymore. And you mentioned earlier um, that some communities have a totally shared economy, but others don't. Um, could you give maybe a rundown of some of the different models of economies that you've seen in communities? Definitely, definitely. So what I tend to do when I try to explain this is to try to have you imagine it as a continuum between like a completely shared economy and a very private economy. Um, and I just wanted to make like a small note here that the kind of economic setting or the structures that you make is super linked to the legal structures. So there are a lot of details here that we're not going to go into, but I'll kind of just give an overview. But you have, uh, so in kind of one end of the continent, you have the common economy. And this is where all economics or all finances especially are shared. But that also means that a lot of the other economic elements are actually just kind of dissolving. Like it doesn't make sense to barter in an economy that's shared, for example. And you see different kinds of the common economy. You have one that is shared income, which just means that you're pooling all of the income from the different members into one big box kind of thing or one account and then you share that and often you see that there is not like it's very like it's a very trusting system so it's not like you can have this much a month it's more like you take what you need uh, kind of principle and if it's above a certain amount of money you kind of have to ask the community but if it's below that it's pretty much just like take what you need and then you have, that's kind of like one level of it. And then a deeper level of that is both a shared income economy and a shared savings economy, where you see communities that have both. Uh, and a shared savings economy means that when you go into the community, you also put all of your savings into a common account. Like there are some structures that kind of allows you to bring that money back out if you leave the community. And there are also some that says, no, now it's in the community and then you might get another amount out or you don't get anything when you leave the community. So that's kind of one end of the spectrum. And then in the other end, there's like very privatized eco-villages where individuals, they kind of separately own a piece of land and the buildings on it. And then they have maybe a shared field or a common house uh, that is shared ownership. And then you can find kind of like all nuances in between that. So semi-shared structures, and maybe I should just kind of mention a few examples. So one way of doing it is to own commonly, maybe as an association or any other kind of like legal common structure, a, a large building. And this you see in kind of a lot of kind of co-housing communities and things like that. So here you would kind of rent out the rooms to the members. Uh, and as such, the eco-village itself becomes kind of like the landlord. And another way of doing this is that the eco-village owns all the land and then the members can buy the right to use a certain plot of land. And then the houses that they build on those plots are owned privately. So that's another way of like making a distinction between private and common. It's interesting. Well, as you were talking about shared economy and the idea of sometimes even putting in all your savings and all your income as you go into a community, it made me think of for another episode, I spoke to someone from Tamera 
about uh, their approach to love and relationships. Even though, you know, I've been in the eco-village world for a while, sometimes hearing these very different concepts kind of can provoke a reaction. It really, because it's challenging some very basic assumptions that we have about the way we work, the way the world works, the way society works. And that's something that I felt when you, when you were talking about money, because I think for a lot of people, we're so used to a concept of our money being ours, we've earned it. Why should I give all my savings um, into something shared when I don't know what I'll get back? Or some people may share less. Do you think that's, I mean, I guess that must be incredibly challenging. And when you were speaking to people from those kind of communities, did you get ever a sense of that being very challenging or they had to kind of go through a personal process to come to terms with that new relationship with money? Do you mean especially in the common economy one? Yeah, I think especially in those, but I guess it's um, for all kinds of economy it is a bit of a different relationship than perhaps the mainstream relationship with money. Definitely. I think it's a super interesting question and I think we focus very little on it, but it is definitely a mental shift when you go from an individual idea of private ownership into more. And I, I will say it's not just a shift, it's a, a slow transition often, I think for most people to go into, it's kind of like surrendering into more and more levels of trust and of sharing in different degrees. And like even doing it on a small scale, like uh, on the kind of semi-shared structures, I think there will also be resistance in different people. And that was actually one of the things that I was writing about in, in the article that I published where you can really see that there are different levels of maturation, you might call it like that, into um, being able to share and being in that mindset. And it helps a lot to be around other people that do it. I think this is very similar to the process of going into uh, yeah, sharing people as in, in open relationships of really just have to, having to go through an inner process of doing that. So definitely, and I definitely heard a lot of stories about that and about what it can trigger. I think there will be many different levels of resistance when you go on this path. And maybe some people won't feel it as much and maybe others will feel it a lot. But um, what I saw is that it was definitely present um, in all the different. But what I also saw is that then the people living in the common economies, that was kind of like, then it was oh, like there was no resistance anymore. You're already living in it. You already gave yourself into it. And it just creates a lot less problems on the social level. And that was really interesting to see and hear them talk about how the social life like there were topics that didn't even matter anymore didn't provoke anything because there were not any more a sense of who owns what where is the money going all these things you just have a lot of things taken for granted that makes social relations a lot easier so linked to that what did people tell you in your research about the benefits financial or maybe Otherwise, you talked about people's needs being met. So maybe in that sense as well. What do people tell you about um, the benefits of living in this more shared and communal way? Yeah, definitely. So, so what the communities do is to pool a lot of different kind of capital into a shared form. So it becomes cheaper. And that can both be in the sense of financial capital. It can also be in the sense of energy or work-related things. But it gives 
the individual, the family, access to a wide range of facilities or goods or services that they would maybe not be able to access otherwise without having a lot of money uh, or a lot of energy. So that's kind of like the practical sense of it, some of the goods that it brings to be in these kind of communities. And just to give some examples, it can be ownership of land, of buildings, of common infrastructure, let's say like electricity or water or heating, but it can also be anything from a pool table or a swimming pool, like some leisure activities, to tractors and other tools that kind of help promote self-sufficiency that you would again not be able to afford if you're on your own. So it's like a deep sense of this kind of sharing or collaborative economy that you know the EU is currently talking about and is wanting to facilitate as the new economic way. But this is kind of like a deeper sense of that. Uh, and apart from that, you can kind of see, and that's also a result of it, that the cost of living is generally lower in the majority of eco-village contexts. Although it's not always the case, I should say that. And this is both because of different consumer choices, but also because of all these kind of shared facilities and infrastructures that I was just talking about. So it's, I mean, it sounds like you often kind of get more than you give. I mean, it's not so necessarily so transactional, but you put in what you can, but you get out a lot of benefits, not only financial, but social and well-being benefits. But that's once you're in. I mean, what about buy-in? Because I think a lot of people would love to live in eco-villages, but they're a bit worried about the economic transition that that means, you know, what to get into the eco-village. Did you hear from different communities about their processes, kind of the financial processes that people need to undergo to to join the communities yes definitely definitely and but that is very very dependent on what kind of economic structure is set in place in the community that you're looking at so if it's one of the communities that has a rental structures you don't normally have a very hard economic bar for getting in there you kind of just have to start paying your rent whereas in some of the ones that has a common no not a common but has uh, ownership over land for each member or the right of the usage of the property, there's normally a bigger um, initial payment to become a member. And this can range in all kinds of degrees. And I guess right now I'm talking, especially in the process of when the community is starting, because then the properties would be pretty much empty. Whereas later on, when there are built structures on them, you kind of buy a house as well. I think this is very different in the different contexts of Europe. In, in the North, I've seen that it can become really expensive because they're sold on market prices sometimes if they're not regulated. Whereas some of the eco-villages have put into the statutes to have a price ceiling where you cannot you know, sell your house for anything higher than this and this price per square meters. And that's to kind of make sure that there's no inflation and there's no um, yeah, strategic buying of it. So it's very interesting to see because it can get really expensive, but it really depends on the structure of this, the specific eco-village. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to try to imagine eco-villages as some degree of a big shared household. So the more hands there are, the easier it gets in the economic sense, not necessarily in the social sense. When we look at work or energy as capital, you see that things get a lot easier when they're done together and the individual normally needs to give less in order to get their needs covered 
So a good example of this is shared meals or common dinners that are present in most eco-villages where they eat together on a regular basis. And by cooking together, it means that maybe you just have to take one shift of cooking in maybe even a month. And there you have to do the work for that one meal, but then the rest of the work of the other meals is done for you. Whereas if you're living alone, you would have to do the work for each meal. So this is also what community structures can bring uh, to your economy. And it really depends, like it really is happening on all different kinds of levels, not just uh, eating together. And then apart from that, you see that, yeah, no, no, what I want to say with that is also that many eco-villages have also institutionalized this in different ways, but especially in the area of community work. So they say, okay, you have to give a certain amount of maybe hours uh, a week in order to be part of the community. So this is also a way of, of pooling resources. And then a, a thing that I think is not very often mentioned about economic structures and eco-villages is that lending and borrowing and sharing in generally, it's just a lot easier when you're talking about it to your neighbors or when you meet people regularly. So both like the sharing and lending and borrowing of products and of like tools, but also of ideas and knowledge is a lot easier. So I have another really big question for you about economics. I know it's a big topic, but obviously the eco-village uh, principles around economy are very different from the principles that guide our current mainstream macroeconomic models, um, you know, individualism, competition, and so on. As you've made reference to before, in order to make a living, many eco-villages and eco-villages do still have to interact with, um, with that system. And did you get a sense of how eco-villagers feel about that contradiction or finding ways around it, finding ways to live with that contradiction? Yeah, I think I could get a sense of it, but I, I should say that I didn't do any direct research on that topic. Yeah, so there is definitely a feel that there is a kind of dichotomy or a parallel real reality where you have to navigate both. And it kind of materializes as this balance between self-sufficiency and being in corporation or also working with this vision of changing the surrounding structures is quite present in all the communities and almost all the members that I've talked to. So I feel like it kind of slides two ways. Like you can kind of see it as you feel like an agent of change in the system, but you can also choose to see it like you're a victim of the system in that you just kind of have to make a living. So I, I've seen both narratives, but I will say the one about being a, an agent of change is the most prevalent. Um, so I think my answer is a little bit double-sided. In, in the article that I published for the conference, Ethnographies of Collaborative Economies, I argue that eco-villages are in their experimental form intermediate, intermediate spaces between the mainstream and some kind of like transition space because their actions and behaviors, they tend to inhabit both of these practices, both kind of like the old narrative, so to say, and like the conscious, socially equitable and sustainable practices. But none of the eco-villages that I have seen or been looking at act only within one of these spheres. So, so you will see this play out also on the micro level in the individual lives of the eco-village members as well. It's kind of like a constant dance 
between the direction and the ideal and then the mainstream reality that you're also being a part of and i think yeah i think it might be useful to imagine it also as a continuum rather than an either or like to kind of come back to the first question i kind of imagine that each member of the eco village will feel these sensations of contradictions within them in in one way or the other so in some ways um you know, again, we think uh, perhaps living in an eco village, you're you're freed from from these systems or from the contradictions that we all have to live in. But really, perhaps um, when you're living in an eco village, it's more about mitigating, trying to find solutions, but also being aware that you're you're working within a system, and rather than f- feeling like you're a victim to it, you just try and you you perceive it in a different way and you work around it in a different way. Yeah, yeah, you're supported and you're also inspired and to find new ways of going deeper into that transition. Yeah, I think it's really about being a bridge or at least that is the the sense of meaning that the members can get from it. And what makes it less difficult is that you see the purpose behind it. Now, finally, I want to move on to, because I think a lot of people listening uh, will say, great, sounds fantastic. I don't live in an eco-village. I might never live in an eco-village or I don't live in one yet, that's for sure. What can people do in their own lives to to perhaps uh, relate to money or economy or meeting their needs in in a more eco-village style way? (laughs) I like that kind of way of saying it. Yeah, it's nice. I think there are a lot of things that, that you can do as an individual. I think the first part is kind of just to broaden the perspective out and understand that economics is not necessarily just about money but it's about like covering your needs in all different ways and then you can be really creative with that and really just play around and make it a fun practice to see okay how can i actually substitute this thing that i need or or how can i find different methods in order to get that in my life i've kind of tried to create a model that is putting some of the ideas of eco-village economics into the realm of the individual economy. I call it kind of like the economic cosmos of each individual. And it is comprised of 12 different elements that you can use if you want to and feel inspired to in your own life. And I can kind of go through them. So there are 12 and right now I'll go through especially, yeah, 10, 11 of them. Uh, And this is a work in process model, so there's still a lot to be learned, but it's definitely a place to start. So the first element is about self-sufficiency. It's about looking into your life and seeing where can I make things myself? Where can I grow things? Where can I, can I have bees? Can I have chickens? Where can I uh, really look into that? Also about making essential products yourself so that you are the owner kind of of that need. Then the second one is to buy local. This is one that we've all probably heard before relating to sustainability, but to drive down the mileage of each product and support the local producers. Then there is one element that is called own or share quality tools, because tools, as we were talking about before, is really one of the enablers of being self-sufficient or of being able to create more of the products yourself. 
So having tools that you know will last for a long time and will support you in your journey is quite important. Then there's one called learned skills. And this one is about knowing that your capacity is also of economic value so that if you know or have learned a skill, it could be like knitting or doing woodwork that is of continuous value to other people, you will always have something to trade with, always have something to give in the community sphere or to barter with. So that's the idea of learning a skill or more that you know you can always have. Then there is one called non-monetary support systems, which is kind of like an invitation to look at how can I start to trade more? How can I start to barter more instead of necessarily having your money as the middleman, as I was saying before. So yeah, really looking into your own life. What is it that I can trade with? Sometimes it's just time or a skill, or maybe you're making something yourself that you can try to trade. But at least, like, I think the difficult part here is sometimes to ask the question to people, hey, do you actually want to just trade this instead of me buying it? I can give an example from my own life. I am right now trading uh, childcare. I take care of children for uh, yoga. Or I give some work hours to a permaculture farm in order to get their kind of veggie boxes. So this is ways that I trade. Then there's a more technical one called uh, try to choose ethical or sustainable economic alternatives. This is really related to the bigger economic structures. Um, at this point, there are quite a few ethical and sustainable banks, pension funds, investment opportunities, um, and even phone companies. So sometimes it's really just about looking out and seeing hey, what are the alternatives that are out there in my country. And I think a little side note to this one is to be super aware of the bank that you're currently using, the investments that you're currently investing in, even the pension funds are investing for you. And sometimes they invest in quite nasty things. So it's nice to kind of have an eye out on that. The next one is called diverse financial income. Here the invitation is to try to imagine if you can find different ways of getting financial income because most of us tend to just have one main job and that leaves us in quite a fragile position. And I'm not saying here to have two big jobs or anything like that, but more to kind of widen the opportunity of maybe I have one main job and then I have a small side gig or something like that. Because whenever we talk about resilience, it's often about diversifying um, the means that we have. Then there's a permaculture principle called generate and store surplus. This one is about, it, well, it can both be financial and material. So the financial way would be that we kind of have a buffer on our bank account of money that can just kind of lay around in case of emergency. Most of us feel most comfortable having this kind of buffer, whereas some people are more comfortable just living, I would say, on the edge or just kind of <laughs> swinging around the zero every month. But having this kind of buffer allows you to make some of the good and big investments that will then help you live cheaper, live more resilient. It can also be material in the way that if you have a lot of apples from your tree, you don't need to use all the apples. You either store them for the winter so that you continue to have apples, but it can also be that you store them in, 
in social capital by giving it away to neighbors or other people that then tend to be more likely to reciprocate at a different time. Then there's one, and this is very related to what we're talking about here, deepening community and connection. So finding communities in which you can easily trade, for example, or create things together or learn the knowledge that you need to know, or just kind of going into a community that is itself a sharing community. And at this, like now we can see it at all different levels, even on the bigger economic scales of having Airbnb or any of these kind of big micro, like big macro businesses that are earning a lot of money on it, but it's still enabling us to share more. But it is also an invitation to look at how can I make this more local? How can I look for maybe a small group that just want to trade and barter, or maybe a group that want to um, insure one another so that we don't have to buy into a big insurance company outside of us. Uh, it could be an eco-village, which is a deep level of sharing, but it also can just be kind of more surfacey level. It could also just be creating a Facebook group for your road where you can kind of share, oh, I have a surplus of pears this year. Does anybody want it? Or does anybody want to give this kind of service? Then I would like to buy it from you guys. So that there are many levels of doing it. And I would really invite everyone to, if you cannot find these, then try to make them. Because the more of these levels of community, the better. And the more secure we can feel. Because the kind of key to this element is that we have to understand that the most important economic element that we have is really our social relations. If you know that you have some really good friends or family members that will take care of you, then even though you lose your job or your left hand or whatever, you will still be taken care of. We can try to start to think about our relations in that way as well. And maybe that can even help us also to prioritize them more. And the last one is, uh, no, it's actually not the last one, but this one is lower, lower consumption and heightened life quality. So it's about being very aware of what we consume and maybe to try to spend our time consuming things or maybe not even consuming things, but doing things that really just heighten our life quality. And often these are things that don't take a lot of consumption, like taking a walk in the forest and being with people or meditating. All of these are activities that we can do without consuming a lot. So yeah, that's a kind of more behavioral transition as well. One that I then added on later on is one about depth. Trying, if you can, and I, all of these elements are really just invitations. I know that not all of them, everyone is able to do, but to see if you can put into your own life. But we're kind of growing up in a society that really are pushing all of us to take depth and to, or to take a loan. And we don't have to always. Some, in some cases, yes, we do. Maybe you wanna start an eco-village and the only way of getting that piece of land is to loan the money to get it. And then maybe it's worth it, you know? But we should be very aware of when we do it uh, because it does put us in a different economic situation for the rest of the time of having that loan. And it often creates a lot more burdens, economically speaking. So those are 11 elements that you can use if you want in your own life.
to become more resilient and more sustainable. It's really a combination of those two and it's quite inspired by the eco-village practices, yeah. Thank you so much, Dicta. I think that's a really inspiring and practical invitation to all of us to review our economic cosmos, like you say, <laughs> um, and think of economy more like an eco-villager. So thank you so much. Really appreciate you being with us today. Take care. Thank you. You can see some illustrations visualizing Dicta's model of personal economic resilience in the episode notes of today's show. You can also find more episodes of the podcast at geneurope.org slash podcast. You can learn more about eco-villages at geneurope.org and sign up to our newsletter to get updates on courses, events, volunteering and articles about all things community related. And speaking of money, you can always become a donor to help us keep supporting eco-village development. Visit geneurope.org slash donate. Thanks for listening.